the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program Fox back for another episode, and I'm extraordinarily pleased today to have two of the most unique voices in compliance. Uh, Ronnie Feldman, president founder of Learnings and Entertainment, and Ricardo Pelfon, fellow U of M law grad, first of all. But more importantly, for this podcast, the founder and CEO at Broadcast. So, gents, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. So, today we're going to talk about training and communication, and you guys, um, come at this from a perspective that not many compliance practitioners do. Uh, Ronnie, you certainly have a, a, one of the more unique backgrounds in compliance coming from a different area. I don't think Ricardo can claim that uh, being a U of M law grad, but uh, I wanted to start with maybe both of you guys giving your views on uh, what's compliance training. Do you want me to go? Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, I'll lead with that. Uh, so my view is that compliance training is, like uh, most of the other elements of a compliance program, a tool to an end. Um, so it's a tool you use to get, uh, prevent misconduct. Uh, it's not an end in itself. I think that's one of my core beliefs is that doing training is in, in itself not a good thing. It is always a tool you use to, something else for, to achieve something else. It is the right tool for the job when you need a human being to make some type of decision that you can't otherwise control with a control, uh, like a process, software, some other element of the program. So it fills a very unique niche within the compliance uh, officer's uh, tools. Um, but when used for the right purpose, it's very powerful. Yeah, and just to, so Ricardo and I agree on this, um, like I, I believe that it's just viewed too narrowly. Um, when you first hear the term training people uh, immediately go to you know an e-learning or a trackable thing or um or a live educational event but really the goal is to get people to behave differently so like ricardo said uh training is is a tool in the toolbox to mitigate risk and that includes controls communication and awareness it includes having policies that are interesting and and readable I, what you're saying, what is training? It People think it's to push this stuff out where it really should be part of this broader skill set of helping to mitigate risk and change behavior. One of the things I've heard you both say, sometimes loudly, sometimes softly, is that compliance professionals almost universally get training wrong. So uh, why do you think that? And then uh, what are some of the solutions that you guys uh, bring to bear to get it right in your opinions. Yeah, I think I tend to be pretty loud on that. So I'll take the loud part of it at least. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, and I'll echo your loudness. <laughs> I, I think to pick up on something Ronnie said, I think there's two reasons. Um, so the first is pick up on something Ronnie said. Um, uh, it's a lot of us focus on format as how we think about what training is. So we think of training as uh, a transactional event that is going to look and feel a lot like school. And that, that is what training is. It's something that you do so you can say you sat through the experience. Um, so you think about form instead of function. The function is basically acquiring some type of skill that like now you know how to do this thing correctly that you didn't before. 
And that leads into the second area where I think we get it wrong is we confuse. And I think that this is not, this one is not limited to compliance officers. This like almost everyone that has to train someone in anything struggles with. And that is the delta or the difference between compliance or excuse me, between training and education. That is, if you are an expert in area, it is pretty easy for you to try and educate someone to have your level of expertise because you're thinking from your own frame of reference. It is a lot harder for you, but more, way more useful for the person for you to think from their frame of reference, what do they need to know? And odds are it's much smaller than what you need to know because they're probably needing to know something for a very specific purpose rather than this really broad subject matter expertise depth that you have. And that's the difference between trying to educate people, which is you see when people try and give courses on these abstract legal concepts like corruption and money laundering, these are just legal constructs or not things people necessarily do. The things they do are what they need to know. They need to be trained on how to do things like close deals, uh, do uh, push releases to a product uh, and account for things, account for money going in and out of the business in a way that is compliant. And so that is what training looks like versus trying to educate people to basically have the compliance officer skill set. So it's those two things, format um, and then format over function, and then thinking about education instead of actually training the person. Yeah, and so I, I, I not a surprise that I agree with you, Ricardo. Um, so I'll pick up on a different aspect that drives me crazy about compliance training and that it's typically um, boring, preachy, and infrequent. Um, and frequency out of necessity because a it's boring and preachy and bloated, um, so you can't get uh, access to people more frequently for that. And what we know is that if it's boring and preachy, uh, people are um, kind of annoyed at you uh, for making them go through the experience, so they don't think well of compliance, which means they're much less less likely to speak up to ask questions and report concerns. Yeah. Um, you lose trust. Uh, and, and to me, these are the most important things is I, I actually don't care if an employee knows the right or the wrong answer, but if they feel empowered to ask for help when they see an issue or uh, to speak up about a problem, that to me is far more important about mitigating risk because the, the, the social environment and the, the leadership environment, trust and leadership are the things that influence behavior much more than knowledge. Um, we all know, we, we all know uh, things that we know to be true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll act <laughs> on those things. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, it's form over function and it tends to be pushed out in a way that a lawyer wants to say something versus how an employee might best receive something. Yeah. I think I like you talk about the advertising analogy a lot, like an analogizing to the world of advertising. And I think the way a lot of people do compliance training right now would be like if their company decided to advertise their products and services by releasing like a hour long mandatory infomercial like and boring infomercial once a year and then never say anything for the other other for the entire rest of the year. And then being like, that's it. We'll just let the money roll in. Yeah, well, and you, you've used the analogy before, Ricardo, about like what is it like the uh, uh, your user agreement for your yeah. If you compare like what product at like if you go to Apple's uh, product pages, so if you go to try and buy a device from Apple, compare what those look like and what they say with the iTunes user agreement when you actually buy the have the product and are trying to use it, and uh, the delta is like massive. The more your stuff, and the, the message we get from that are that 
uh, Apple really wants you, and this is not unique to Apple, but it's just a good example because they're so good at the product advertising. Um, they really want you to buy and use the product. It matters a lot less whether you actually read and understand the end user agreement. Uh, it's just whether you click yes on it. And so the challenge is that a lot of compliance training looks and feels like it's for the second purpose, but it's the first one getting people to do stuff that matters because this is a preventative tool. It's not a reactive tool. And so if people aren't actually getting something out of it and changing their behavior in response, it doesn't accomplish its goal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to re sorry, uh, Tom, I'm um, just to put a button on that. Yeah. So we're, their training is the user agreement where it should be closer to the marketing campaign um, yeah. uh, is, is I think is, is I think a, a great analogy for this kind of thing. Yeah. Ricardo, one of the uh, key insights I've heard from you is the not so much effective training, but targeted training. Sure. And I've heard you talk about sort of the three, perhaps three layers within an organization uh, that need training, the gatekeepers, who need more targeted training, the general populace who may need some general awareness of the code of conduct and how to uh, raise your hand or, or uh, make a hotline report, something like that. And then uh, key employees who may need uh, other types of training. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about almost a risk-based approach, if that's a fair assessment. It is. And that's actually, a, I think, I love that you said that because it's like, that is actually what a risk-based approach is. And I think this is an area where I feel a lot of folks get hung up on what, what risk-based means. So they think of risk-based as we train people on our risk topics. Like we have an anti-corruption course and a privacy course and an AML or a trade compliance course. Therefore, we did risk-based training. It might, it's sometimes more useful to think of like, so in this context, when people talk about risk-based training, what they really mean is like threat-based training like who presents the biggest threat to the company versus the risk concepts. So that's where I think some folks get sideways on that. And when you start thinking in terms of like threat, you realize pretty quickly that for the vast majority of organizations, the people that really can do damage or do good to the organization is a relatively small subset because they have some type of power or authority or by virtue of their role and what they're authorized and required to do, they're the ones that are creating or controlling risk. And so like I use the example, like one of the places where I was in house, we had like 80 or hundred thousand employees and contractors, but like 500 people were director and above. I was one of those people. And like, I had authority to sign for stuff. And so like, if you have the authority to bind the organization, because you can sign for things, you, you manage people, whatever that is, um, you are a magnitude more important than someone that is on the front line. Not that those people aren't important to the organization, but they also aren't risky and they probably don't have a lot of authority to either create or control risk. And so when you think about, um, and, and those people will not be sad to hear they don't have to sit through training that doesn't apply to them, like just <laughs> realistically. Um, uh, they'll probably be delighted to hear that like they can focus on their job. So if you're gonna take your average organization, probably five to 10% of it are the people that are really going to make the difference in terms of compliance risk. Um, those are your people who are leaders. So they have, they're high up enough in the organization where they manage people, they have authority to sign for stuff, approve for stuff. Um, that's one piece of it. You have some frontline employees who just create risk. So even a very junior salesperson might be risky. So they're, they're not a leader, they may not have authority, but virtually their job makes them risky. So you have that subset. And then you have your gatekeepers. These are the people that are your approvers. And, and you see these audiences can heavily overlap where you have someone that's a leader and also a gatekeeper. Gatekeepers are like finance, HR, legal. They really need to know what they're doing too. 
But often um, what happens with compliance training is that we just try and train everyone without any real differentiation and everyone has limited resources. So as a result, the compliance team spends a lot of time on things that don't add a lot of value and instead should be, could be putting a lot more time to a smaller audience that would move the needle a lot more for risk um, and also preserve their political capital as well. Because to be honest, um, no matter what your job is in the organization, if you're in some one of these control functions like compliance, HR, IT, whatever, um, you have a limited amount of time people will listen to you in the year. And so you need, really need to make that count. And so making sure you are leveraging your resources to those audiences that make a big difference, that's what targeted training is. And it's again, really targeting the threat to the organization. It's people who are risky because they're going to do something or people who are risky because they're, they're gatekeepers and they could fail to do something that would control risk. So Ronnie, let me uh, direct the next question to, to you to at least begin on. Uh, you have various uh, links and different types of communications. Some are, are what I would call long form, but some are relatively short, uh, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you would use the different forms of communication. Are they uh, targeted for different messages or what? how should a compliance practitioner think about the, the type and length of training or, or I should say communications that you would advocate? Yeah. Um, so I, there's a couple of quotes that I really like that talk about the philosophy of this before I talk about the, the specific tangibles. One of them is um, people need reminding more than they need instruction. Uh, and uh, the one that I like is uh, regular uh, vitamins are more effective than annual training inoculations. <laughs> um, and the, this applies really well to the compliance field because although there are some comp complex policies and, and gray area issues that it's good to sort of run scenarios on to educate people, I might be using the my terms wrong. Uh, I, I, I'm one of those people, Ricardo, that confuse training and education, so my apologies. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, while, while that's important, I think the uh, the concepts for the most part are relatively simple but need regular reinforcement and if you're gonna uh, do regular reinforcement it has to be interesting or else you'll get message fatigue um, or you won't get access to channels so this is sort of the philosophy why we, we want to make things uh, interesting playful fun um, entertaining so we tend to focus on things that are uh, 60 seconds or less. So you think of it like a commercial so that you can put it in more places. I encourage my clients to not just think of it as pushing things out on a regular basis, but embedding within the business so that there is uh, a constant reminder that this is important. And there's a constant reminder of here's who you go to for help. And here's the resources that are available. Um, so we do make things that are like, I would say upwards of the five minute length where we might like have a, an interesting case study that can be used to teach. Um, and those I think are valuable to do in like, I would call that like a micro learning. So you could pair a little fun case study um, with some talking points and give it to a people leader and say, hey, have a discussion with your group. I think those things are valuable. Um, but I also think just the general idea of how can we show up more often? And that means using channels like in addition to your LMS, uh, uh, newsletters, uh, Microsoft Teams or Yammer or Slack have ways to message people that way. 
um, giving tools to ethics ambassadors, giving tools to managers. Uh, if you have a company app, pushing things out through the app, uh, uh, showing up in other departments, newsletters, showing up in leadership training, showing up in safety training, <laughs> show up, show up where people are and get your little messages included in there. And that gives you much more visibility. The only way that they'll let you do that, they being, you know, you have to expend political capital to do that is if you make it interesting and fun. And that way it doesn't turn into wallpaper or a finger waggy thing that nobody wants to play. Ricardo, you use visual communications uh, as effectively as, as I think anyone in the, the compliance space, but I wanted to maybe explore that a little bit with you. I know Broadcat, when initially was founded, we saw a lot of visuals mm -hmm. and you do a broader uh, remit of things now, but why the visual communication and why do you find that or how, why do you find that it can be so powerful? I think the issue is this simplicity and utility. Um, so we are really focused on when things are designed really well and they feel easy to use and they are uh, like obviously useful on their face, people will use them. Um, and so when we focus on design and, and the visual piece of it, what we try and do is figure out. So um, if let me give you a good example. So, again, using the example of Apple's product marketing versus its user agreements, just when you look at it, just the second you look at it sends a very different message to you. So the marketing is sending you a message that you get, okay, they want me to read this and understand it and do something with it. And it's therefore presented in a simple, lightweight, uh, visually appealing way for me to process. So there's a lot of, there's uh, uses of uh, headings, white space, images that add value to it by, by demonstrating or explaining something. Um, all that communicates to you that they want you to interact with it, understand it and take action. By contrast, when you see something that looks like a user agreement, you just see a wall of text. And the message that we've been trained to get from walls of text when a company presents them to us is that the company does not care if we understand it. What they care is that we, cl we click yes. And so some of it is sending that very simple signal of this is the expectation from everything else in your life. You know that if you see um, a, if, if when you're what, when you, for example, you get when we used to travel and you would rent a car, you get presented with the, the car license, the car hire agreement that's going to walk through all the terms and conditions. You know immediately that company does not care if you read it, they care if you sign it and accept liability. And whatever you do afterwards, they're fine as long as they can blame you. And so a large part of the visual piece is making clear to employees that we actually do care whether you do this. Because as a very simple matter, it's a lot more expensive to clean it up on the back end than it is to just have you all do the right thing on the front end. And so for us, visuals are a way to just convey that message of uh, we want things to be simple, easy to understand, but also deeply useful because we want people to take action in response. And so for us, visuals often look like things like checklists and flowcharts that are intended to be used in the moment and can fit on a single page of, uh, piece of paper. So now I'd like to maybe turn to both of you all's professional background because you do have disparate professional backgrounds and ask really how that has informed uh, your uh, ideas on communication and training. Uh, and I'm going to start with you, Ronnie, because you, as I said, have a unique background. You've been part of the Chicago comedy scene for many years. You have a, uh, a, a sturdy background in improv. And I was wondering how that experience has really helped inform uh, your ideas around training and communication for the compliance uh, profession. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's it really informed uh, 
honestly, it's informed everything about how I approach life <laughs> in a very uh, strange way. Because when I came into the improv community, uh, I was just you know at a business school and on a very uh, corporate path, and the philosophies behind when I discovered the improv community, there's this whole wonderful philosophy behind it about uh, making your partner look good, um, um, uh, saying yes to more things and adding adding more things, being more a better listener, being more empathetic, um, mm. really. Uh, and then on the comedy side, taking a look at different formats and how they can be used to deliver information. So if you're doing a sketch on stage, you know, you can tackle a very complex or difficult subject by heightening behavior. Um, so all of these things, uh, after spending 10, 20 years in this community, you start to realize how this can be applied to to the corporate world. Um, and when I started uh, uh, getting asked to create content for this community, you start to realize that the, the thing that I love the most about this community is there's this group of people who are trying to stop, uh, to help people uh, from getting into trouble by being advisors and coaches and providing tools. Um, but there's this terrible reputation around the words ethics and compliance. So the first thing that we try and do is um, apply the different ways we communicate in the in our regular everyday lives and apply it to the space so that people will know that you are the helpful, welcoming advisors and coaches that you are. Um, so a couple quick tangible things like we try and take things from the from the real world so we make music videos um because people like listening and watching music videos and you can play them over and over and over again so it's a perfect example of something that could be repeated over and over and over again because people don't mind listening to music over and over again so you can really hit themes about speaking up and doing the right thing and integrity without being boring and preachy uh, I, I love. I personally love the John Oliver show, uh, which is on HBO, uh, called Last Week Tonight, where he tackles these really complex topics. So we created a show called Workplace Tonight, where we use that similar format, uh, uh, you know, variety show, graphics over the shoulder, metaphors and jokes to tackle conflicts of interest, corruption and bribery, privacy, respect in the workplace, speaking up. Um, and our most recent thing we created was, uh, I, I, I like the show Drunk History, which is on Comedy Central, where I learn about history because they have comedians telling these stories. So we created a show called uh, Tales from the Hotline, where we retell real stories about bad behavior through the use of uh, the storytelling device. So long story longer, we just try and take the entertaining ways we consume information in our everyday lives and apply it to these very difficult subjects. Um, sorry, I lied. I'm going to say one other thing. Um, I, I love the phrase, uh, you know, you, um, there's a difference between having a difficult conversation and a conversation about a difficult thing. And what I mean by that is that you can, I think in compliance, we tend to focus on the, the message and how we want to say it. But the more that we apply a different wrapper around these things, an entertaining wrapper, it was much more likely to land in a way that it can be heard. Ricardo, you have worked uh, in some, uh, a couple of very prestigious law firms. You've also been in-house in the compliance arena and the general counsel's office. How did that experience really help inform uh, the founding or, or why you founded Broadcat and the, the messages that you're uh, helping compliance officers communicate to employees now? 
Sure. Um, yeah, I, so when I was in-house, um, as well as my practice, largely when I was outside counsel was internal investigations. So if someone called the hotline, I would be the person that would either handle it or manage someone else handling it, basically. Um, and I think how that led to the space I'm in now was just realizing that what almost all compliance training communications is like just doesn't add doesn't actually prevent misconduct. And the reason I say that is that you see really similar themes come up when you manage a hotline, and you see really similar things that people do that um, and they get wrong and they get wrong with good in good faith. So um, I think when you're managing a hotline, you have like maybe some subset of people who are your bad actors and you just fire those people and get them out. Though training's not for those people. It won't work for them. But the larger portion are people that are like, they meant to do the right thing. They just like legitimately forgot or did not know what it was. Um, th those are people who are trainable. And so what I was seeing was that um, almost every training and communications product on the market was not addressing the stuff that actually caused investigations. So you never have you never have an investigation come up because um, someone didn't finish the e-learning course. What you do have a come up was that person didn't catch a red flag in an invoice, then retrospect seems obvious. Or that person said something on a phone call they shouldn't have, or they signed something they shouldn't have. Those are the things that are very knowable and very, very repeatable um, across organizations. It really, uh, and so what I realized I worked in a couple of different, I was in-house at two different places. One of them was kind of the parent company of that owned a lot of different uh, diversified companies. And we handled the hotline for, for, I think, almost all of them. And so seeing this across a lot of industries, the same stuff comes up. Like whether you're in oil and gas or aerospace or uh, high tech, like the, your salespeople do similar things, your HR people do similar things, your finance people do similar things. And these are the things that tend to get you in trouble. And uh, I didn't see anyone working backwards from that. So what we started and even some of the very early things I did when I was at Broadcat were just like things that I was creating because I needed them. That like, you know, you have an investigation, you have to close that out with like fixing the problem and then realizing, oh, if we just gave people to these things, if we just gave people these things on the front end, we wouldn't have the problems in the first place. And so there's where you see our reliance at Broadcat. Like our niche is really these super business focused operational checklists and flowcharts of you're a manager, you have to approve an invoice from a third party. What are you looking for? That is something that pretty much no one is ever trained on what to do. You suddenly are promoted manager and now you have to approve invoices from your field reps or approve invoices from your vendors. And no one tells you, hey, if this thing changes, if the pay to country changes, uh, we need to look at that and figure out what's going on. And we don't know what it is at that point. And this is this is like the big difference between the top-down traditional model of training where you train people on topics and this. Because at this point, you don't know if that's an issue, a fraud issue or it's a fraudulent invoice, whether that money is being used to pay off a government official as a bribe or whether it's some type of money laundering issue. You just know the money's missing. Those are the things that business people can spot. They know something is wrong. What category, what legal category it falls into is that's a compliance team's job. And so we, that, that's what led to this is basically seeing I'm, you know, I am the most expensive way to solve problems as an investigator. It is exceptionally expensive to have a lawyer jump on a plane with outside counsel or someone from the big four and go to Russia to look at something or England or wherever it is. Like anytime you get these people on a plane, you've already spent within like the first day of that investigation, more than your training budget probably is for the whole year. And so it's just a very myopic way to solve problems. And it could be solved by saying, you know, look, this stuff keeps coming up. Why don't we just tell people how to do it the right way? 
instead of telling them about concepts and telling them to figure it out because that doesn't work. So you'll see uh, effectively, uh, and, and this theme that I'm talking about of like training people on what to do rather than concepts, this is something that um, we just released an interview with, with Wei Chen on our website um, where we talk about a lot of these things with her. She's a former uh, compliance counsel expert for the Department of Justice, but it's not new. Like this is stuff she was saying back in like 2016 when she was with the Department of Justice. She had did an interview with, um, I think used to be on the ECI's page of, about this. And so th these concepts are things that like, this is what has been on the radar for years. And so we have been on this message since about that time, because I started the company at the end of 2015, of just saying, let's focus on the things that actually get us in trouble. And we can worry about making everyone a compliance expert later, if ever, but at a minimum, let's just have the finance people do finance stuff compliantly. Let's have our salespeople sell compliantly. And a lot of that looks like just telling, saying them, when you're doing this, this part of your job, this is what to do. And so that, that's how that background formed it as, you know, coming to it from, I'm on the back end of, the, of it as the investigator and the stuff we were, the stuff that it, like everyone was doing on the front end was not addressing that. So let me conclude by asking you both, uh, is the, both is the messages that you are communicating to the compliance uh, function and compliance professionals, is it finally beginning to resonate? And where do you see uh, ongoing communications and even training and education uh, for compliance, maybe 2025 or down the road? I think the world is coming our way is the simplest way to say it. I think that the more um, compliance programs, ethics compliance programs uh, become uh, more um, sophisticated, they're realizing that these old methods don't work. Um, so what I, what I mean is that I, uh, more, well, it, it happens in phases. Companies realize that the big annual bloated training doesn't work. Many of them are still doing it. Um, so what they do is they make a uh, uh, four shorter versions of that bloated preachy training, right? So that's their first step. And I think spending more time on the cultural issues of, of how um, uh, the importance of speaking up, um, here's where you go to for help, um, making policies and resources available in real time so that they're there when you need them. Um, these are our communication and awareness, so a lot more communication and awareness and using more interesting ways to convey that uh, and providing tools for people. I, I feel like the, the next phase of our, our maturation as, a, as an industry is to make these tools and resources available at all times and to change the reputation around what these things are about because we, we all wanna make the workplace better yet most people won't speak up about it. That, there's a deep-seated cultural issue there. And that doesn't change unless you do, uh, have a different message that's going out over and over and over and over and over again that's saying the opposite, that this is important. We speak up. Here's how to do it. You're safe. And you need to say that as often as possible. And then I always come back to the best way to change behavior is through fun. So you have to find interesting ways to convey that information so that it doesn't become message fatigue and, and so that other people will carry those messages forward. That's my opinion. Ricardo? Yeah, so I, I think the, the currents are definitely going our way on this for a couple reasons. So I think the first is just what guidance you get from the government. Um, and so that has really evolved in the past, I'd say five years, uh, compared to, you know, back in 2012, 
when the Morgan Stanley declination or declination with air quotes came out, um, I think the message a lot of people took from that right or wrong was that all the government cares about compliance training is how many times you document that you did it. And uh, everyone complained about that. And then in 2015, they brought in uh, Huey. And then you see with the first iteration and then the subsequent revisions to the evaluation of corporate compliance, just a shift in what they're what they're talking about and the way they're talking about, it, like, why did you do it? What was the purpose versus just dumping information on people? Um, and so I think that I think there's I don't know that that actually is is I don't know that they were really looking for something that checked the box with the Morgan Stanley Declaration. That's definitely the message people took from it. And you've seen that change. So I think you're seeing that message start to trickle down. I think one thing that we really, when we talk to people, uh, prospects and other people in the market, uh, in-house folks is like, you gotta read the government guidance. I think I am pretty consistently surprised how rarely people do that. Um, some people are very switched on and tuned into it, but like, that is really how you're, you're gonna be graded on your job if something happens. It's like, we put out this document telling you, these are the questions we're gonna ask. You do not wanna be caught unprepared on those. Um, and there's still just a lot of mythology as to what they look for that's not consistent with what they've been putting out. So the first is government. The second is budget. So I think that one thing that is interesting or one thing that I've seen come out of after the initial shock of the of COVID has, has worn off, I think you're going to see continued downward pressure on compliance team budgets. And that's going to be not only the amount they spend, but the amount of, and I've seen this, the amount of training the organization is willing to tolerate. So in a 10-year bull market, um, uh, there's, you know, having 100,000, 10,000 people sit through six hours of training that's not mandated by the government, but the compliance team is like, we think we need to do this much training, um, probably gets a pass. But when everyone's kind of like having to take cuts across the board, I think you are seeing people be like, okay, we have to figure out a way to do this more efficiently. That's going to show better return on investment. That's going to be more measurable. That's going to have higher, more bang for the for a buck. And so I think you, as you see budgets, so it's it's interesting. I think we'll actually get a lot better. Um, and I think we're I'm already starting to see that when people have more pressure on their budget. I think there's a lot of stuff you can do um, when you have almost when you no one's really like pushing down on you, but it's it will force people to get lean. They'll be painful for a lot of folks. But ultimately, I think it is going to move the broader market towards solutions that are a lot more agile, a lot more flexible, a lot more just in time, and a lot less of the very heavy, like top-down model um, where everyone's treated the same. They sit through a huge amount of stuff together. Um, so I would see both of those things working together to continue to push push the market towards again just solutions that are more focused on the business rather than focused on and having the business do business, having the business people do business compliantly and ethically versus uh, training for the sake of training. Okay, and can I put a button on that, Tom? Like, uh, sure. like I, so I, I always come back to what is our, what's the ultimate goal that we're trying to do? And you said it really well, that we're trying to get people to do their jobs compliantly um, and officially. I don't know if I said that exactly right, but whatever you just said was great. Uh, and, <laughs> And uh, and to me, th that supersedes almost what you're saying about the DOJ because the DOJ is usually following what the more um, mature co companies are doing. And and sure, we need to to read and follow what they're saying, but really, what they want is you to run a compliant program. And the way to do that is to give people tools to help them do their jobs better and to make sure that they're comfortable speaking up to report problems. So when budgets are being pressed, 
I think, you know, a more efficient and agile way to solve these problems is not the big bloated annual training. It's some of these other uh, concepts that we're talking about, because ultimately that helps you change behavior. Mm. And that's what we're really talking about here when we, when it comes down to it. So gents, uh, before I ask Ronnie to tell us all goodbye, could you tell <laughs> us uh, if our listeners wanted any more information on uh, your organizations, where could they go? Uh, you can go to thebroadcat.com uh, or just Google Broadcat. It'll come up pretty quickly. Um, you'll find out, you can learn about what we do, our products. You can get that interview that I mentioned with Wei Chen as well. Uh, and for learnings and entertainment, you can go to learningsentertainments.com. It's uh, the word learning with an S, the word entertainment with an S. Why? Because that's the URL we got. But you can find us at Learnings Entertainments or LNE Creative. Um, and you know, we like to apply our comedy and entertainment principles to these things, and we like trying new things. So we'd love to, to chat with you about uh, interesting ways to do that. Well, say goodbye, Ronnie. Goodbye, Ronnie. Goodbye, Ricardo. Goodbye, Tom. You guys are fabulous. Uh, you guys, this is audio, as so you can't see us, but I can see these guys, and they look great. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.